0: Well, we're going to turn now uh, to Matthew 24, verse uh, 32 to 35. Today is the passage we're looking at. Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 to 35. Now, we're, today we are going to read again, just to get uh, maybe one more time the, the whole context of the all of it discourse, uh, so that you know where uh, what, what Jesus is referring to in these in this passage that we're we're going to be looking at today. So I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin right back in verse one, Matthew chapter twenty-four, verse one. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or in Sabbath. For then there will be great, a, a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpses, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, You know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. These are the words of Christ. You may be seated. I'm just going to ask for God's help. Lord, we pray. As we look to your word now, I pray for, that you're, you would fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word faithfully. That your spirit that would empower your people to hear your word and that, you're, that you would convict those here who do not know you. That they would hear and uh, be convicted and turn to Christ and be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> So, I'm going to leave more of our summary uh, to all that we've gone through to next week. But it is important to see that we've kind of, we're kind of nearing the end of um, this this at least this first portion of the all of it discourse that has um, been quite a, a journey to go through uh, together. Um, but we we've seen how the, the context has been set. We, we've followed all throughout Matthew. Uh, setting the scene Matthew 23 Jesus is in the temple and he's pronouncing the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees uh, for their hypocrisy and, um, and, he said, and, then he, and he ends with that phrase that they are just like their fathers shedding the blood of the prophets before them uh, and wh- what prophet have they not killed and, and so he's, he basically says you're going to do the same thing with me Uh, And he he says, your house has left you desolate. And then Jesus leaves the temple, uh, he says. And he's there. The the disciples are uh, they're kind of they're in awe of the temple. And Jesus he prophesies. He says, not one one of these stones will be left upon another. He prophesies the destruction of the temple and the disciples, right? They want to know, well, well when is this going to happen? What tell us, Jesus. We want to know more about this. This is this is a big deal. Um, and, and and this is this I mean and in a way they're correct. Like this is you're t- this is like sounds like the kind of thing that could only mark the coming of the kingdom that they've been so longingly looking into and and expecting. And so we, we talked about again how there's there's many different positions, and most people today they take a futurist perspective on the, the, the details listed here, um, but how I'm one of those oddballs, and um, and we've been interpreting this as uh, Jesus preparing his disciples for that question: when will the, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And he, he's preparing them for, for the events that are going to lead up to that, so that the believers, the Jews in Jerusalem at that time, would be able to escape. Um, and be saved and preserved, uh, a people for his own. Uh, And that judgment would come upon the rebellion of Israel uh, who had rejected and crucified their Messiah, their King. And so now Jesus moves from describing the events to come in the future. Again, in the context, this is the future. The disciples are wanting to know when, when will these things be and he now goes to ensuring them of the certainty and the clarity of the things he has told them about. He wants to wrap this up. He wants to seal up what he's told them. Jesus concludes these approaching events with an exhortation that, to trust the sufficiency of his words. So in verse 32, Jesus says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So we see Jesus is reassuring his disciples that everything he has said is all that they need to know in order to endure the judgment that would soon befall Jerusalem and the temple. False prophets would arise. Not to mention, the disciples themselves would prophesy. They, right, they would have revelation from God. And the temptation would be very real. There would be a very real temptation to seek further revelation on these things. Right? To, to think that Jesus, maybe he left some, some important pieces uh, out of this puzzle. That they need to, you know, maybe they need to... God, they don't. Want, God doesn't want them to be lazy and sit back and wait. Maybe they need to do something and seek out more answers and more, uh, more signs and things that must happen. And I, and I think that temptation would only increase as each year passed. Right. So Jesus is saying this uh, in what thirty three A.D. It's it's said, and so you have. Uh, almost 40 years, right, leading up to 70. So, as each year passes, and, and that's a long time. Again, I just I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but that's more than my lifetime. So, he, he, Jesus is telling you the time is near, and and you're expecting things to happen, and we're just like that, and things don't happen as fast as we'd like. And so there's there'd be this temptation to to question themselves: Can we? Maybe we heard Jesus correctly, maybe we got all the pieces, but did I understand him right? Right? Uh, and so Jesus appeals to their common sensibility here. To determine the, sea, the signs, the seasons, and the order of and nature and creation. Right? He says, you're able to look at a fig tree. You can look at a fig tree, you see the branches extending out, you the, the, the leaves coming out, and you know that summer is near. Like, you don't question that. You don't doubt that. And just as you're, as you're so confident in that, so you can confidently wait for it, and you can observe, they could observe the signs that Christ had revealed to them, and they could know that the coming summer of deliverance from their adversaries and persecutors was near. With the same, that same confidence and instinct as, as we have it when we look at nature, they could all the more apply that to their instinct in observing the words of Christ being fulfilled and taking place. He says, He says, when you see these things, you know that He is near. He's at the very gates. And Luke 21, 31 In in Luke's account, he says, uh, When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And and I I believe what what he's getting at there, why Matthew doesn't have that, maybe Luke does, is that the coming of divine judgment upon apostate Judaism, which violently opposed and sought to annihilate Christ and his followers, would also mark, so while I've said this before, while it, it's, mark, it's a mark of judgment, it's also the mark of God's deliverance of it and of His redeeming grace of those who put their faith in Him. That it would also mark the final transition and establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth in a way that it hadn't done so until that point. right? That, that it would no longer clearly, visibly be limited to a single geographic location or nation. That it, nor would it be would they be tempted by the Judaizers any longer to go back to making those sacrifices, to go back to having to go and, and, and do those rituals again and again. Why? Because they weren't there anymore. Right? There there would be they would no longer be that draw. So so it would be the kingdom would be unleashed in the world uh, and, and scattered into the world in a way that it, it had not been while Jerusalem remained the center and the hub uh, of, the, of, the Christian, of the birth of the Christian church. The earthly foreshadows, uh, right, the, the temple and its sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies, they would be shaken in order to make way for the unshakable kingdom. That's what Hebrews 12 is, 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 is telling, was to, encouraging them to, to, to look to. I, I hope this helps as an illustration uh, for what, what Jesus used here. And again, it's, it's a really simple point. He's saying, you can trust, you trust the seasons, you trust your eyes. When you look at the world, you can trust my work. Just, just a, a heads up. It's not, today's message isn't going to get much more complicated than that. I'm just going to try to just assure you in that and, and show you this and, and illustrate this as well as I can. Uh, I've been reading The Silver Chair from the Chronicles of Narnia with uh, with our twins, and sometimes the older ones will join in. And, and it's, uh, I'm going to try my best to just, some, for those who don't know it, that, that you c- can know enough to follow the illustration, but for those who know it, uh, you'll, you'll see what I, it, very clearly what is being said. Um, but in the story, Aslan who is, uh, Aslan's the creator and sovereign over the the fictional world of of Narnia and the surrounding lands, Aslan sends two children, Eustace, or or I'll call him Scrub, is his nickname, Scrub and Jill, on a mission to find the sole heir to the throne of aging King Caspian, Prince Rillian, who disappeared, and he's been missing for years. So he sends them, he says, he he, he sends them on this mission to find Prince Rillian. And Jill asks... How in the world, you know, she's this little girl. How is she supposed to do this? How is she supposed to know where to find this prince who's been missing? And Aslan gives Jill four signs which she must follow and which he says must take particular care to remember to direct her along the way to find the prince. And of course, along the way, although the signs in and of themselves, they're clear enough that he gives her, there often, as it goes through the story, there's often distracting circumstances, right, and, and surrounding events surrounding those signs. That unless she was focused on looking for the sign itself, it gets lost in everything else that is going on. And so, how, and, and, he's, and he's illustrating how easy it is that when, even though when you're given this one command, if, if, you're, if you lose sight of that thing. Um, how, how easy it is to lose sight of it. And, uh, and so this third sign that I wanted to specifically point out and illustrate here was that you shall find a writing on a stone in, in the ruined city and you must do what the writing tells you. So he says, you're going to find a writing on a stone in a, in a ruined city and you must do what the writing tells you. So that's the sign. It's vague at that moment, but when you get there, he's saying it'll be it'll be clear. You'll know what to do. Well, the writing on the stone ends up saying, "Under me," it says, "Under me," and and that is they were to find Rillian under the ruined city, which Scrub and Jill and their travel companion named Puddleglum uh, they initially missed that, and and eventually they actually end up. Because they missed that sign, they're distracted elsewhere. They end up as captives uh, being led under the city. So they actually end up on the same path, but it, on the, the right path, but it almost seems like it's coincidence, or they're not really sure if they actually were obeying the right path. And then to add to the doubt over whether they were on the right path or not, it's later suggested to them that they were deceived... Because the stone originally contained a longer message. It, it used to say more than just under me. But the, the stone used to mark the grave of a king. Um, and if, before the stone was broken off. And, and the rest of the message was broken off. That, and so only those two words remained. And so this is how they responded. Lewis writes this. And this is, um, this is what I'm getting to. Lewis writes, This was like cold water down the back to Scrub and Jill, for it seemed to them very likely that the words had nothing to do with their quest at all, and that they had been taken in by a mere accident. Don't you mind him, said Puddleglum. There are no accidents. Our guide is Aslan, and he was there when the giant king caused the letters to be cut and he knew already what things would become of them, including this. Right? So Padoglam's not just looking at the message itself, he's looking at the one who gave them the message. When we take our primary gaze off the instructions and off of the sovereign power of the one who has given the instructions, it is very easy to be led astray and to doubt whether we have even heard God correctly or misunderstood what he has said in the first place. It's it's um, as I said, it's simple and yet it's incredibly dangerous and difficult to, to not fall into And then secondly, Jesus, in verse 34 or 35, he seals this. And I want to to say to you with, with Christ's words here, do his disciples, but I want to say this to you. This point, this application, that you can rely on Christ's words more than you can rely on heaven and earth itself. So verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation Will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now I'm not going going to go over verse 34 uh, in great detail, because I've already if you don't remember it's a while back already, but I've already devoted an entire sermon to that verse alone uh, before we began our study of the Olivet discourse. Because I wanted to help you to understand and follow my reasoning for interpreting all these things as having taken place um, before that the generation of Jesus and his apostles would pass away. And so, so I, we, we, I looked at the kind of reasoning and the, the arguments for that. How one interprets this verse or, or brushes over this verse will be directly connected to how all these things preceding it will be interpreted. So, we're, so if, you, if you missed that message or you want to review it to be reminded of the arguments, you have to look for that, that message, uh, the audio of that online. But again, I'll, I'll just remind you briefly uh, that there are many brothers who differ widely with me on the timing and fulfillment of the events of this passage, whom I love and respect and praise God for as fellow ministers of the gospel. But I wanted, I'm just going to briefly uh, recap what what my take is on this and how that has led to the interpretation that to this point that we've we've taken. Um, so so um, first he says, "Truly, I say to you," which is it matters. I mean, that's the the whole point of "Truly, I say to you" is he's saying this matters. So "Truly, I say to you" is a, is an important uh, opening statement. It was his way of highlighting the significance and the certainty of what he was about to tell them. And although there are differences, as I said, about the, uh, the interpretation of this generation, I have been teaching that it refers to the literal generation to whom Jesus was speaking at that time. So when he says this generation, uh, just think the, the, the plain meaning of what he would be saying, of what I would be saying, if I say to you, this generation is wicked... You know what generation I'm referring to. Well, Jesus was referring to his contemporary generation. With generation, uh, there would be roughly representing the time span of, of about 40 years. And as an example, you have the generation of Israelites, right? Who wandered through the wilderness uh, um, until, that, un- until 40 years. They, they all died off in Numbers 32, And that fits perfectly with the timing of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Therefore, when he says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He is giving his disciples a very broad yet objective timeline to hold him to. A very broad yet objective timeline to hold him to. It is broad, but because he's not telling them the precise day or hour, he's not giving them a date on the calendar and saying, "This is, you know, look for this day." Yet it is objective because he has provided a fixed time span wherein all these things, as he says, would take place, to which they could hold him accountable to. To which, if they did not take place, they could they could essentially follow the rule of Deuteronomy 18, of what of identifying a false and a true prophet. Deuteronomy 18, Moses, he's speaking of, actually, in 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah. Verse 19, whoever will not listen to... Um, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But then this is the test that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 18.21. He says, and if you say in your heart, how may we know that what the Lord has, what the Lord has not spoken? Right? How can we know if this prophet is saying the Lord's words or his own or someone else's? He says in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the, one, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so when I say that Jesus has given a, an objective prophecy here, he is, there is bounds in which it could be said he did it or he did not do it. There, there, there is a fixed uh, measuring in which it could be said that it came to pass or it did not come to pass. And, brothers and sisters, everything Christ prophesied, including his own death and resurrection and ascension, and his decreed judgment upon the scribes and the Pharisees, and all who followed after them in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as well as the preservation of. Of the Jews who believed in Christ and heeded his instruction to flee to the mountains when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. All these things took place as he said they would and within the time frame that he said that these things would occur. All that he prophesied, that is, except for the promise of his bodily return at the resurrection. To judge the living and the dead, which is still being worked out in accordance with Scripture. So, So there's still nothing that is conflicting with what has been prophesied, with what has gone before. And much that has been verified and proven in what has taken place. So yes, you need be afraid of the words of Christ. You ought to pay attention and learn and remember all that He says as if your life depended upon it, because it does. Matthew 4.4, 4, remember, He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And verse 35 drives this point home for us. Lest there be any hidden corner of doubt in your hearts heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away he said so some refer uh, refer this to the passing away of heaven and earth as a reference to the last day when heaven and earth would be will be created anew from from scratch it'll be you know essentially the, the world will come to nothing and god will create ex nihilo again um, I would say that's what most, I think most people today even believe. Again, I'm, I, I get to be the oddball on this. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. I believe it teaches the purging and the cleansing and the glorious redemption and renewal of the heavens and the earth. So that the passing away of heaven and earth here refers to the continual... It, it, it doesn't refer to it being literally, like, disappearing... But it's referring to the continual fading and changing and shifting which we see and experience in the world that we live in, including death. But either way, regardless of what, what your application is, the, the world disintegrating or the world, um, and, and the, the shifting nature of the world, the application to what Jesus is saying can, can be the same for, for all of us. Isaiah 40, verse 6 All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. So I'm going to get back to... That's really the point that this is driving home. But I, I wanted to just... Mention this because it is it's interesting and fun to consider. That some scholars have pointed out that there may be an allusion to the temple itself here, and I believe there, there probably is. Um, but some historians say that the temple, uh, there, there's an allusion to, to the temple here, as, as it is said that the temple had been built. To look like, and it's designed inside to look like a microcosm of the universe. So that the holy place and the most holy place inside the temple were constructed to reflect earth and heaven. With heaven being behind the curtain, right? In In the most holy place. That's where heaven was. And that's where, like, right? Where nobody was to go. And then you have, in the, in the holy place, you have the earth. And so you have, and again, this isn't hard to think that this, might, this would be partially where people's minds to, would go to, as the temple was where it was understood that God's presence dwelt in a, in a unique way. That, that the temple was where heaven meets earth. Um... And so whether or not that would have come to mind when Jesus said this, uh, I'm not sure. I believe it, it certainly um, it still works within what, what is being said here. I wasn't able to dig too much into it, so I didn't want to make too much of it. But the point being made here is right, like, that buildings, so temples, buildings, wealth, businesses, careers, empires... Nations, loved ones, your health. These things will all come and go as the Lord determines for his own pleasure. But God will not and cannot go back on his sovereign decree if he is truly the eternal God. Right? We can change. That's, and praise God that we can Uh, Otherwise, there would be no hope for us. But God does not change and his word does not change. So this essentially means that Jesus is making a contrast. Jesus is arguing from the great to the greater, from the reliable to the more reliable, from the created to the eternal. So so Jeremiah, this is giving an example of the language of Scripture that I, I believe he's pulling from. Jeremiah thirty-one, verse thirty-five. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-five says, Thus says, says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And he says, if this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever, from being a people before me forever. So what he's doing is he's he's not telling us anything about uh, he's not telling us to expect or saying anything about the fixed order departing. He's saying. He's trying to build their confidence in God, the, God's faithfulness uh, to his people. He's saying, you don't doubt the fixed order of creation. You don't doubt that the sun's going to rise the next day. You don't doubt that the moon's going to come at night. Why would you doubt that God who said he's going to be faithful, he's going to keep you and preserve you, that he would all of a sudden drop that ball? Psalm 148 is another example. Psalm 148, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him, all His angels, praise Him, all His hosts, praise Him, sun and moon, praise Him, all you shining stars, praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever. He gave a decree And it shall not pass away. So notice that the permanence that he's speaking of creation. He says he's established it forever. But the permanence of creation is not found in, in its own material properties itself. But he points to it being in the eternal decree of God. That God has set it and so it will stand firm. So we count on the patterns and the predictability of the created world on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis, and we don't even flinch, right? We don't, we don't, we just don't have a problem with that. And so Jesus points this out, and he's, again, he did that in verse 32, and he's just expanding that here in verse 35. How much more can we depend upon the eternal word of God who created the fig tree? And decrees the seasons. Which is more worthy of your trust and your confidence? Wherein lies the source of all power? In the work of creation? Or in the word of the creator? Now some kids here might be thinking. Well, my dad is pretty strong. At least that's what we hope that our kids are thinking. But, kids, who is more powerful and worthy of your love and fear? Mom and dad or God? God. Because God has made your mom and dad. He's the one who put them there, He's the one who's given them the strength to care for you, to love you. Good job. So note, by the way, that Jesus is here equating himself. This is just a random, I, I, I had to say this, but it's, it's kind of taking us off track, but it's, it's very much a part of this still. He's equating himself with what only the true eternal God could truly claim for himself and his word, right? Jesus is saying, my words. He's speaking as if his words are, the words of the Lord who created heaven and earth. He is speaking as God. My words will not pass away. Even though heaven and earth could pass away. As Colossians 1.16 says. For by him. For by Christ. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions. Rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Matthew Henry comments here to to wrap this up. He comments, "Note that the Word of Christ is more sure and lasting than heaven and earth. Hath He spoken, and shall He not do it? We may build more with more assurance upon the Word of Christ than we." can build upon the pillars of heaven or the strong foundations of the earth. For when they shall be made to tremble and totter and shall be no more, the word of Christ shall remain and be in full force, power, and virtue. So as I wrap this this up for us, first I want to address uh, I, just whoever you are. I don't know who you are. But whoever you are who claim To stand blameless before God. Based upon your own merit. Upon your own righteousness. Or upon your own wisdom. Upon your own circumstances. Upon everything being okay and good right now. Do not grant yourself. Nor your circumstances. More credit. Than you are due. But to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after him while his mercy may still be found. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. As I said, praise God that we change that we can change and praise God that he doesn't and that we can stand upon his promise to work in us. If you do not believe Christ could possibly save you in your sins, repent of that. Stop glorifying your condemnation in sin above the eternal power and authority of Christ to justify you by his own righteous blood. And then let me add this to to you believers. If you do not believe that he could possibly sanctify you. And free you from the sin that currently tempts and prevails upon you. Repent. Your sin may be great. But Christ is a greater savior. And ultimately be encouraged Christian. And hold fast to the promises of God's word in the face of sickness, in the face of poverty, of broken families, in the face of propaganda wars, of the uh, the climate change cults, of mass slaughtering of our unborn children and now the elderly. And of governments and institutions who continue to oppose righteousness and truth as powerful and as daunting as these evils and these uncertainties may seem, do not grant these things more credit and more power and more permanence than God grants them. We must be more like C.S. Lewis's Puddle Glum from Narnia when when it comes to reconciling the commands and signs of God's Word and His promises with the difficult or conflicting things that we learn and hear and see in the world around us in the present. We can take Christ at his word today, not only because he has proven himself to be trustworthy in the past, but because, as Hebrews 1.3 says, because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Because it's all hanging on his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my word will not pass away. It was true for Christ's disciples and it's true for us as his disciples today. Uh, Psalm 37, I'll close with this. Psalm 37, he says, Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in receiving the blessing of your infallible and all powerful word that we have received this word of of just the reminder of how powerful it is that we would not as we go as we study your word week by week day by day that it is good to be reminded of um, that we are not just we're not coming to just any ordinary book we're not coming to any uh, historical um, ancient documents but we are coming to the living, breathing Word of God who, who became a man, Jesus Christ incarnate, and who revealed the Father to us and lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And He, sent, and he proclaimed the Gospel and He, and, uh, he died and, and after rising again, the Gospel went forth. And his word went forth in power as he, as he commanded it and as he predicted it, as he said it would be. And Lord, now the word has gone forth and here we are on the other side of the world, at the ends of the earth. Still proclaiming the gospel, calling upon all who would hear to repent and to turn to Christ. And so Lord, we do this uh, expectantly in, 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 uh, in hope that there, we're here for a reason. That there are still those who have yet to respond in faith. That that you are calling to yourself. And then we pray that they would do that. And that there are are many of us here. That you've called. And that you're calling us. And equipping us. To continue to proclaim this message. And to to, to stand upon the power of the gospel. Upon the power of your word. To not only save sinners. But also to sanctify us. that That you have given us. The power, the word, the wisdom, the instruction to rid ourselves of the deeds of the flesh, to rid ourselves of the old self, of the sins that would seek to entangle us and trap us and choke us. Lord, don't we ask that uh, prevent us from being blind and closing our eyes to, to the evil. And to the wickedness around us. But also protect us from, from staring at it for so long that we lose sight. That you are, so, that you are the sovereign God and, and Lord Almighty. And that we would look to you to do these things that we pray, that we ask for, that you've called us to do. That it's not in our own strength, but that it's by your strength and your word that these things will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.